Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today, Dr. Bosazan interviews the world-renowned professor of psychology at Harvard Medical School, Dr. Daniel Brown. His background is in molecular biology, his PhD is in religion and psychological studies, and he has served on the Harvard Medical School faculty for four decades. He's an authority on hypnotherapy, trauma, treatment of attachment pathology, and peak performance. He studied meditation practice for almost a half century with some of the world's greatest teachers, including the great historian of religion, Mircea Eliade, and His Holiness the Dalai Lama, with whom he also collaborated on two books. Dr. Brown is a meditation researcher and a translator of ancient texts from Tibetan and Sanskrit. He's the author of several books, including Transformations of Consciousness with Ken Wilber and Jack Engler, and Pointing Out the Great Way. at being such an impactful force for good in the world. What happened in your life that put you on the path to help develop human consciousness to higher levels of consciousness? My meditation practice I've done for 47 years now and I had the privilege of having wonderful teachers and in the course of that meditation practice you develop a much larger vision of life uh, an experience of awakened awareness. And in stabilizing that awakened awareness, it changed everything about how I looked at the world. So you begin to look at the larger picture of life and self, self-importance self becomes rather unimportant. And you start thinking in terms of the greatest social good and what we want to pass on to future generations. I guess we all need that. So this podcast series aims at shifting the investment, the financial and business world toward greater uh, integral sustainability, which uh, you know our systems do not provide. So what advice would you give our audience on the importance of inner work with respect to outer transformation? How can we access that? In Tibetan Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism particularly, there are several goals practice. The first goal is the experience of awakened mind, a limitless, brilliant, awakened awareness that's compassionate and holds a larger vision in life at all times. Then you go through a process of purification of the residuals of the ordinary mind. And the outcome of that process is the a state which is called Sangye, which means, Sangyo is means eradication of all negative states and the flourishing of all positive states. There are 80 positive states to a realized Buddha mind. So imagine the implications of mental health for the achievement of Sangye, where there are no negative states in one's experience anymore and all positive states. And imagine if we uh, develop that kind of realization in leaders, what kind of leaders and what kind of world we would have. Yeah, so I understand that you are actually currently delivering this kind of leadership training to leaders in the world. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, I've done a course in uh, performance excellence at Harvard Medical School for 27 years now. 
I have three versions of it. There's a version for primary care doctors and surgeons. That's why it's at the medical school. I have another version of that I developed for judges. And a third version for executives that I do all around the world. It covers how one is on top of their game, how one evokes states of performance excellence, but it includes uh, how you develop the larger vision of your life and your work and operate out of that vision. It includes uh, virtue training, the developing character strengths in leaders. It includes uh, vital engagement of everyday life, so it's, it doesn't go beyond just the work, but it's uh, an attitude that you bring towards everything you do. It includes resilience and hardiness training, and the best that we know about that, and how to be uh, happy and bring more positivity in your life and to think in more pro-social behaviors that are, go beyond self-interest to the greater social good. So that's the general course. More recently I've been playing with this idea of what, what it means to train realized leaders, leaders who develop themselves to the highest potential and manifest the larger vision of life and positivity in their life and the implications of that for leadership. It's actually an old model. It goes back to the model of the enlightened kings. And uh, we're trying to reinvent that in modern forms for leadership training. When I started to meditate 38 years ago due to stress, I had, um, I had to be a closet mystic for several decades before I could talk about my meditation practice without negative consequences for my career. In the meantime, mindfulness meditation is prevalent everywhere. Everyone talks about meditation. What is your take on it? I have two serious criticisms about the popularity of mindfulness meditation in the West. Uh, as a psychologist, I did outcome studies on long-term meditators, mostly mindfulness meditators, for 10 years back in the 1970s and 80s. And one of the things that we discovered as we got to know the practitioners pretty well is that a lot of them had developed a lot of very bad habits during meditation and no one was ever correcting them. And that's the trouble of making meditation experiences too popular and institutionalizing them that people develop bad habits and the teachers are not careful enough to work with the students close enough to correct those bad habits. So there's a lot of sloppy meditation out there. This was a problem that was prevalent in, in Tibet, actually. Most of the meditations were taught as part of a close relationship, one-on-one -on -one or in small groups from about the year 500 A.D. to about 1050 A.D. And then there was the rise of the big monasteries in Tibet. So you got 5,000 people in a monastery all meditating at the same time. And about 100 years later, you get thousands of books written on problems of meditation. And no one stepped back and they say, well, all those problems were developed because of the institutionalization out of trying to teach it to the masses because no one was following the meditations carefully enough and people were doing a lot of slop. We've repeated that same kind of problem in the West. Everybody does mindfulness, but who's following the students really carefully? You go to a retreat for 10 days or two weeks or three months and every three or four days you get interviewed in a group and you say two or three sentences about your practice and they say keep on going. That's not teaching. No one's following you closely enough to correct the bad habits during meditation. 
I teach a kind of style where we follow students uh, carefully over the phone or Skype. And I have uh, one of the Tibetan lamas that we teach was made it a requirement that if he was going to show us the advanced teachings, he would only show it if we followed the students carefully to correct the bad habits so we can move them along the path. But when you institutionalize it and try and teach it to the masses, that creates a lot of problems, a lot of sloppy meditation. The second objection I have to it is mindfulness has become an end in itself. How many mindfulness teachers ever talk about the experience of awakening? We've lost the heart of the practice. The goal is to awaken. And that's attainable. It's not even hard to do. I'm happy to say that uh, we have the first neurocircuitry study on awakening, and we actually got identified the, what happens in the brain during the awakened mind. We found that uh, we met it, we tested our meditators in uh, four meditation conditions. This was done in collaboration with Judd Brewer at UMass Medical School and his neuroscience lab and funded by the Fetzer Foundation. The four meditative conditions were uh, a vast, timeless ocean-like awareness where everything arises like waves in an ocean. It's called ocean and waves practice. The refinement of that is the natural state of the mind, which is a non-dual, limitless awareness where everything arises is automatically empty. The third is setting up a, a view of the unbounded wholeness of awareness and taking the unbounded wholeness as the object of meditation, which sets up the view for what's called the lion's gaze. And that's the view that's used to open up awakened mind and then stable awakening. And in the three meditation conditions, there was a strong activation of the interior cingulate cortex, which is the concentration center of the brain, where you focus and hold and sustain attention with a certain intensity. But the frequency was of the subjects who activated the ACC was in the gamma activity range. That's very high, high frequency activity, which is very rare finding. And we found that in pretty much all of the subjects, which means they were intentionally holding the view and all the cells in that region of the brain were firing. But when they switched to stable awakening, we found that they activated an area of the parietal cortex, which is usually associated with shifting from local to global awareness. So when they got a stable awakening, they were in this limitless, brilliant awakened awareness field, which is different from ordinary awareness, and limitless in its scope, and filled with love and compassion. And again, when they shifted to stable awakening, there was strong gamma activity, so all the cells in that region are firing and they're all firing synchronistically in, in that region, so awake means awake. It's a very unusual neurocircuitry markers and we were able to identify the neurocircuitry of awakening and uh, I happen to think that's worth teaching and studying, And uh, but it's not something that anybody ever mentioned in mindfulness, but it's the heart of the tradition. In the West, we reduce everything to what we want it to be, and we lose the heart of the tradition. The main realization is awakening. We say that's the confluence of all the teachings, and the refinement of that awakening through purifying the residuals of the ordinary mind until you have eradicated all negative states and caused the flourishing of all positive states. We now have the funding to study that, Sangha, the complete eradication and purification of the mind of all negative states and the flourishing of all positive states. I happen to think that has profound implications for mental health and for leadership, and that's what we'll study next as we shape this leadership model. Imagine a leader who had a strong vision of, a, of what we want to pass on to make a better world, 
and, and acted mostly out of a strength and positivity to manifest that vision without all the negative baggage that gets in the way. That's the kind of leadership we need. Right. So if there were one single most important action we would need to perform as leaders to reach the tipping point in transforming our society, because the reason why we're having this conversation has to do with the fact that we are at a threshold, at a crossroads in our society where we... The message would be train the mind. Train the mind. Mm -hmm. And refine that training till you get somewhere with it. Maybe that's the perfect place where you could tell us where we could reach you or give us an insight on the website where we can get more information about you or um, how can people get well, in touch with Well, I live in two you? worlds, so I have two hats. My clinical and Western psychology hat is on a website called danielbrownphd.com and my meditation website is called pointingoutway.org. Okay. I keep them separate. Okay. We'll have that in the description of the podcast as well. Thank you. So as we are moving toward the an era dominated by AI and its impact that, you know, obviously is coming toward us and uh, there is little we can do because technology has always influenced uh, humanity. What is your advice? Is AI going to replace us as humans in every aspect of life? Are we to be reduced to some algorithm in, in the computer, which is what some scientists say? Can we I be reduced? I have some concerns. Yes. And the concerns come out of um, having taught a course in performance excellence for the uh, main financial investors in Silicon Valley. And uh, one of the things I often do in that workshop on performance excellence, which I do for several days, is an exercise on shaping and the central guiding purpose to your life so they have a larger vision of their life and their work because there's a lot of research that shows that people who articulate and shape that largest, largely spiritual vision of their life or humanitarian vision of their life and that's always in the backdrop of their awareness so it informs everything they do they're much more resilient they operate more out of positivity they're happier they get much more done so Getting people to shape that larger vision is important, particularly for executives and leaders. And this is the first time, I think, in any audience over 27 years where most of the people in the room couldn't do it at all. And uh, these are the people who are shaping the future of computers in the world. And I said, that's not good enough. I said, you have this vision that you're influencing millions of people through computers, but you don't have any sense of how you want to influence them. And what you want to pass on to the next generations, you have to shape that vision. Because if we don't, then it's not good enough to just influence people. We have to know how we want to influence them and what kind of world we want to pass on to our future generations. So I actually thought I could do that group some good, so I'm going back and doing more follow-up with them around this particular issue. And uh, hopefully we can get them to articulate... Uh, why it's important to use computers and how we can use them compassionately for the sake of the greater social good. And that applies to artificial intelligence and to robots. Uh, it's one thing to think about that we can make people's jobs easier and use robots in most work capacity. But we have to think through the economic implications of that. What if in 10 years from now half the world isn't working? How do we support those people? Nobody's developed a plan for that larger vision. We have to stop and do that. 
otherwise we were just a runaway train. Yeah, that's the social implication. My question, I guess, uh, refers to also in in to the to the states and stages of interior human development. Is it really possible to explain that in a way that a algorithm could be created uh, that it replicates that those interior experiences that we have? Personally, I don't believe that that is possible. And you see all of these applications uh, that... Well, it's already the... come up, because uh, in our study on the neurocircuitry of awakening, some of the people in the research team want to develop biofeedback for awakening. Yes. And use the technology to do that. And for certain reasons about how you set up the view to shift to awakening, anything that partializes... And so you move. You so you're not operating out of the unbounded wholeness. Will prevent awakening. So I'm trying to tell them that using feedback actually will make it harder to awaken. Um, and then there's the second added problem is that once people get the idea that there's a technology for awakening, you get a lot of bad technology out there. People who are there just to make money with bad machines who don't do very much, and they give all sorts of fake claims about what they do. We saw that in the bar feedback movement. We're about to repeat the same problem here around that. So I'm skeptical of that. Yeah, so am I. That's why I'm having this conversation with you. And, and you know, I've observed, I'm, I'm not of the, the 68th generation, but I have observed what happened to many people who believe that drugs would induce those um, higher stages of consciousness. And drugs, like hallucinogens, open people up so that they see a larger world in the mind but they also develop a risk for attachment to states, so they always want more and more weird and wonderful states, and they miss the fact that the whole thing is the dance of awakened awareness. So it actually makes it easier and harder at the same time. No one's guiding them along to show them the right way. These teachings and the explicit nature of these teachings are passed down in lineage traditions, we say from heart to heart, from generation to generation, because they're very precious and they work. Some of those teachings are enormously simple, but you wouldn't think of them in a million years. So getting the instructions correctly and having somebody who's going to correct the problems that you get into with it as a teacher is necessary. Otherwise, we just go off into creating a lot of bad habits of mind and dead ends. Right. In other words, you cannot just go and download an app on, um, on your iPhone and follow that. No, there's um, no awakening app. <laughs> There are, you would be amazed how many apps are out there that uh, you know promise you know. Well, this this was an experience that I had some years ago because in in the nineties we were using a tachistoscope, which is a high speed electronic board that flashes events in thousands of a second, and we were testing the speed of the mind in advanced meditators. The Dalai Lama had given us his, his most advanced concentration meditations, and we found that they were aware of blips of light much faster than the ordinary person would be in the ordinary experiences. And then we had a study where we were holding the mind at their visual threshold. Uh, it's, a, it's a total limits of what they were able of, of being aware of and asked them what they were aware of at that point of view. And one of the subjects who had a good stable taste of awakening said, every time you ask me to, to respond, no matter how quickly it is in terms of thousands of a second, I can shift back into the phenomenal mind to do that. But you're asking me to shift out of awakening back to some partialized stance, even at very high speeds, in order to do that. Tell me, can you machine measure awakening? And that's when I thought maybe it's best not to study this scientifically and better to just teach it how to do it. 
Right, so a machine cannot measure awakening and nor can human describe it in a way that a machine could uh, trans transform that into... No, you have to show people directly the methods exactly. to develop the realization directly in their own mind stream. The experience, yeah. How do you describe love in a way that a machine could reproduce it? That's a good way of saying it. Yeah. And another uh, confusion that people have is also, you know, people don't really understand what a state means versus a stage of development and... You mean in the Kemwebo sense? Well, no, evolutionary sense. You know, from, you know, egocentric, ethnocentric, world-centric, spirit-centric kind of uh, awakening versus a a state where you just have a glass of wine or you have an orgasm and that induces a certain feeling that is temporary. Right, as opposed to a way of seeing things that's stable. Exactly. And you live out of. Right. We call that the view that you live out of. Yeah. And, you know, any child, you know... Uh, no, an egocentric child could also have a state, uh, state experience, but that doesn't mean that he or she could, um, you know, have a have a positive impact on the world because he cares about his ego and his own persona versus the world. Well, if you learn anything in this virtual practice, it's self-importance isn't terribly important. Right. But that's not a lesson that's that's popular in the West. In Indo-Tibetan Buddhism, there's a great deal of set of practices that deal with emptiness of self. So you see the self as merely a construction of mind and go beyond it. You don't get rid of it. You go beyond it so that you're operating out of a larger field of global awareness rather than operating out of a sense of self. But in the early Buddhism, the first turning of the wheel, Theravadan Buddhism, which Burmese mindfulness represents, the notion was anatta, getting rid of the self. But later the realization was you don't have to get rid of anything, you just go beyond it. And uh, it's a problem for the West. Because, it's a trap as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Well, also because of the kind of meditation that got popular in the West was from Mahasi Sayadaw. And he, about a hundred years ago, revitalized meditation in South Asia by taking the great stage model for Theravada Buddhism, the Visitamaga, the path of purification, and, and simplifying it. But in that, there's a work on uh, exercise on working with the sense of self called aggregate meditation. He uh, cut that out of his practice. There's no work on emptiness of self or work on the self in Burmese mindfulness. So you get a generation of mindfulness practitioners and teachers who are filled with themselves. Which, of course, hurt the, um, very much their followers, can hurt their followers, and it happened. If you learn anything in Buddhist Mahayana practices, that self-importance isn't terribly important. And you need to go beyond it. That's a more mature view of this. And, and it's represented in terms of the neuroscience, because there are four studies on mindfulness that show that when you practice mindfulness, you deactivate the posterior cingulate cortex, which is the judgmental and characterized, categorizing part of the brain. So you have this kind of non-judgmental state of pure awareness. It's the same area of the brain that's deactivated in psilocybin and psychedelics. So you sit there with everything's equally as interesting, with a continuous awareness of everything being equally as interesting, whatever comes into your experience. But in those same studies, it also showed a deactivation of the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the sense of self, Danness or Mariananess. It gets deactivated. But when we were doing our study with the neurocircuitry of awakening, and the uh, ocean and waves and natural state of the mind in, in Mahayana Buddhism, what's called non-meditation meditation. 
the sense of self was was the media preached on for for a course was still online. It's just that it became irrelevant because you're operating out of the global awareness of in the parietal system. You're not operating out of the sense of self anymore. So you just go beyond it. You don't get rid of it. And that represents the change between Theravada and Mahayana Buddhism. It's actually replicated in the in the neuroscience of the sense of self. So a more mature position is to just don't operate out of the self. It's still there in the background. It's not what you're operating out of. You're coming from a larger perspective in life. And you consider the needs of others and what you want to pass down generations and things like that. Right. In other words, for those of, um, out there, scientists who believe in exponential tech, they need to get involved and really deeply understand what they're trying to replicate by going through the, the process themselves. Yes. Yeah. So but what process and what spiritual path you take on makes a makes huge difference. The, yes. They don't always lead to the same endpoint. Right, exactly. And something like mindfulness doesn't even have an endpoint to it other than being mindful. The endpoints which are traditionally awakening or Buddhahood, no one talks about that. And just, they don't even offer the techniques to do that. Yeah, because the knowledge is not out there, it's not available. It's, it's, not available, available. it's available in the Tibetan widely, tradition. Yeah. We're trying to make it available. Yes, that's why we're having this conversation. So in uh, coming to an end here, what are three specific and most treasured pieces of advice that you would like to give our audience? One, that uh, we need to develop more methods for developing mature adult cognitive development. Uh, Piaget developed a model for intelligence based on five stages of intelligence, the last one being formal operational thinking, where you shift to the infinite possibilities. And that's what you see in adolescence. But we're in trouble as a species if we take it that cognitive development stops with adolescence. So some people have identified seven, like Ken Wilber and others have identified, seven post-formal stages of cognitive development. And uh, uh, I think those are important to study and to do research on. In, in Dzogchen, or Great Completion Meditation in Buddhism, we have very detailed descriptions of each of those states. And to put it simply, it means taking wider and wider perspectives, so you go beyond relativism. There's a there's a whole there's a wholeness to everything that and everything is integrated together within and everything is interconnected in that larger perspective on wholeness, and then there's a larger perspective than that that's non-dual and operates out of awareness rather than the limits of conceptual thought. There's a larger perspective than that 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 takes in the limitlessness of an awakened mind and positivity and all those things. So studying mature cognitive development is important. Along with that, studying metacognition is important. We've learned that metacognition is the capacity to step back and be aware of the strategies you're using during problem solving and uh, your, what your state of mind is, so you self-correct. Metacognition is the right dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex, part of the frontal system. And people who use their metacognition and put it back online tend to do more efficient problem solving and they tend to um, evolve themselves psychologically better. It's also used in meditation. There's a study on concentrated meditators that both beginning and advanced concentrated med meditators that activated the ACC, the anterior cingulate cortex, the concentration center of the brain. But only the advanced meditators 
activated the right dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. So they're always checking in on the meditation to evaluate the quality of it so they would improve it and they wouldn't get into developing bad habits so the meditation didn't reach the plateau because they're always improving it. There's a Sufi tale that says a log sits very quietly on a woodpile for years, but logs never realize God, so don't sit like a log. They would mean a cognitive intelligence. You have to use your intelligence to see what you're doing and to keep improving it so you never settle with sloppy meditation. So that's the second thing I would say, to develop metacognition. Particularly, certain metacognitive, post-formal metacognitive skills are more important than others. And the ones that we know that are best for mental health and also for creativity and business are those that involve the variations on the theme of perspective taking. Particularly, there's a lot of research on taking a larger spiritual perspective in life and the benefits of that. And then the third thing I would say is, is all the research on positivity, particularly Barbara Fredrickson's research. That um, mostly if you catalog our mood states during the day, we have about four to five negative states to every positive state. But uh, uh, people who cultivate positivity in their life Fredrickson found that after the, the, you cultivate positivity and is is as a way of being in life, when you get to the point that positive states outweigh negative states by more than three to one, then your life sort of works, and it starts to spiraling in a positive direction even without further explicit methods of trying to cultivate positivity. And when people get to the point of getting to 11 to 1 ratio of positive states, they, their life works on all the cylinders at once so that their sense of self is strong, their relationships are solid, their work is good, everything in life becomes sanctified and it becomes a calling. And their life generally works. So cultivating positivity has profound implications for mental health as we're just beginning to appreciate. And that's what the, the experience of Sangha, the complete eradication of negative states in the complete development of flourishing of positive states is all about in Buddhism too. So the Western research on positive psychology and the studies of the higher states in Buddhism converge to the same message that uh, people who live in out of positivity uh, uh, influence everybody around them in a positive way and that's the kind of leadership we want to train. Leave behind a better world. And that contributes to the larger social good. Wow, thank you so much. It's been an honor and a privilege to have you. Thank you. My pleasure. To learn more about Dr. Brown's work, visit pointingoutway.org. To find out more about Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.